Hello, and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Julia, and today I am joined by Amanda and a new co-host on the podcast. Hi, I'm Fabiana Corsi-Mendez. I'm a public health major at Johns Hopkins University, and I'm so happy to be on the podcast. Refugees and displaced persons are particularly vulnerable to COVID-19. Many live in densely populated camps with minimal sanitation. The Kutapalong Refugee Settlement in Bangladesh, the world's largest refugee camp, saw its first confirmed case of COVID-19 in May, exposing already extremely vulnerable Rohingya refugees and local Bangladeshis to the deadly virus. This podcast will look at how COVID-19 has affected refugees in Bangladesh. Manish Kumar Agrawal has been working in the humanitarian and development space for over 18 years. In the past, he has served as a program coordinator for Oxfam and an emergency officer for UNICEF. He currently serves as the International Rescue Committee's country director in Bangladesh, where he coordinates the organization's efforts with regards to refugee response. Welcome, Manish. Thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to talk to you, too. Thank you so much. So um, we'll just get started with our first question. Um, so is there, can you give us, can you give our listeners a broad overview of the current state of affairs regarding how COVID-19 has affected refugee camps in general? Well, if you see the refugee camps across the world, at this moment, we have over 70 million displaced people across the world, out of which close to 26 million people are refugees, which means they are not in their home country, they are outside, they have fled. And uh, most of the time, and I mean, if you see that the major refugee uh, refugees which fled from Syria, Afghanistan, and South Sudan, so these are the three countries from where you know you have highest number of refugees, and then of course followed by Somalia and then Rohingya refugees from Myanmar. So this is you can imagine the big numbers of refugees across the world. And most of the time, these refugees are living in very congested uh, camps where population density is very high. And that's where I would like to talk about COVID-19 because, you know, COVID-19 has really affected the refugee camps massively because the population density is high. And one of the mitigation measures, especially when we are in the community-wide uh, infection stage now, where social distancing and health and hygiene practices are critical, and that's where these refugee camps are placed in very vulnerable situation where you don't have a lot of space available. The density is very high. So people are living very close to each other. Apart from that, they are also not having very good basic services, be it health, be it hygiene, water sanitation, and food services. So that all makes them vulnerable. And the third aspect, what I also see is that, you know, these refugee camps, if you look at the total population, more than half of this population is children and women, and they are generally uh, vulnerable both in terms of you know the gender-based uh, inequalities. So that's that's where you know they make they they become more vulnerable. Great, and um, we know that you're the country director for the um, International Rescue Committee of ba in Bangladesh. So we were wondering if you could talk specifically about the refugees in Bangladesh. Um, how many are there? Why are they um, there? I believe that most of them are from the Rohingya population, correct? Yeah. So they are all Muslim uh, people who came from uh, Myanmar. And Rohingya crisis is not very new in Bangladesh. In fact, Bangladesh has been hosting the Rohingya population coming from Myanmar since 1970. So it's close to 50 years old crisis. 
The difference is that in 2017, we had the largest influx of Rohingya population coming from Myanmar to Bangladesh. So exactly 25th of August, when they faced extreme violence in Myanmar. And as a result, they had to flee from their homes uh, to Bangladesh, which is the nearest country. Uh, so uh, roughly 800,000 plus people that time in 25th, around 25th August 2017, they fled to Bangladesh. And of course, there were a couple of thousands, a couple of hundreds of thousand people were already living here. So as of today, we have around 1 million Rohingya refugees in uh, Bangladesh, and all of them are hosted in the coastal districts of Coxil Bazar, which is one of the districts in Bangladesh. And uh, in fact, Bangladesh also hosts world's single largest refugee camp, which is situated in a place called Kutupalam, where more than 600,000 people live in, um, in that camp, a single largest camp. And just to also tell you the, you know, the gravity of the situation, this camp is hosting uh, refugees with the density of 40,000 to 70,000 people per square kilometers. So could you speak to how the International Rescue Committee is adapting its programs, particularly to the COVID-19 crisis? Yeah, so COVID has impacted Bangladesh in general, but also Rohingya refugees uh, greatly. Uh, one, as I mentioned already, that the population density is very high. Plus, you know, this is a bit of new virus, so not people, people don't have much knowledge about it. So IRC, International Rescue Community, worked very closely with the government authorities as well as the UN bodies and other NGO community. So uh, when the COVID situation started in March, we were continuously monitoring the situation. And uh, sometime in April, uh, together, you know, humanitarian community along with government made a decision to reduce the humanitarian footprints in Fox's Bazaar, in particularly in the Rohingya camps. So the activities have been reduced down to only critical activities, which primarily includes water sanitation, hygiene, health, and uh, food uh, food support, and also communication activities, particularly to, you know, primarily to uh, raise awareness among the Rohingya community. So IRC is also following the same guideline, which were produced uh, jointly by all actors. And currently we are, we have reduced our program. So we are also aligned with these critical activities, which I mentioned. And International Rescue Community's biggest program is health, where we provide primary health care services, sexual and reproductive health care services, followed by COVID response now. So exclusively, we have started a health response around COVID, where we are now treating COVID-confirmed patients in isolation wards. But also, you know, we are creating a lot of awareness among community from the, from the point of view of how to protect uh, themselves from the COVID situation. The second important uh, program, what we are also carrying out in a reduced uh, scale because of COVID is the protection. And as you know that, you know, gender-based violence is very common across the world, but in Rohingya camps, it has been always existing. And because of COVID situation, we are clearly witnessing that the gender-based violence has actually increased now. And many women are now uh, reporting increased gender-based violence uh, because of, you know, several reasons. And of course, you know, one of the reasons is that many Rohingya volunteers who were, who were you know, previously engaged as a volunteer with several humanitarian organizations, and because of reduced humanitarian interventions, uh, many of those Rohingya volunteers have lost their uh, volunteer job. And as a result, you know, there's no income at all. I would just like to quote uh, a woman 
which you know we do protection monitoring in the refugee camp uh, on regular basis and in our recent report what we found one woman saying mm -hmm. and i just quote it's a 26 years female from one of the camps she says my husband is now jobless and he's demanding 10000 taka from my parents but my parents are unable to pay this money and because of that he tortures me so this is just a story of one woman but we clearly see that this is the situation which exists uh, very widely in the refugee camp and IRC team is trying to manage many of these uh, gender-based violence cases, but also providing psychosocial support to these women who, are, who have faced those tortures. Um, apart from that, we are massively engaged in community awareness, so especially in Rohingya communities, and uh, we are providing them different messages how to protect. And now IRC is starting a program in host communities. So it's, I'm talking about Bangladeshi population who live surrounding refugee camps because they are equally vulnerable and they are really facing the biggest, uh, you know, I would say, uh, biggest tent because of this large population, which has actually stressed uh, the basic services in Cox's So they are equally vulnerable. And IRC is also now starting program for them in terms of community awareness and in terms of a uh, lot of livelihood interventions alongside health. Yeah, so just to kind of follow up on your answer at the very beginning, and I think you kind of touched on this um, during your last point, um, you said that COVID-19 has obviously affected Bangladesh generally, but also refugees specifically. Can you maybe, um, are, there, are you seeing different reactions from maybe Rohingya populations versus native Bangladeshi um, populations in terms of how you're going about educating these populations, the type of practices that they're doing once they are informed of COVID um, and just like kind of the differences um, between, I guess, those two groups? Well, I mean, as you know that uh, this COVID-19 does not discriminate any population, be it refugees or host communities. So that's my first point. And uh, this is not the exception in Bangladesh where refugees as well as host communities both are impacted. But I think the major difference is the population density. So as I was mentioning that the refugee camps are located in very, very densely where, you know, you have population of 40 to 70,000 people per square kilometer. And if you remember, uh, there was a cruise, which uh, the Prince's uh, cruise, which had population density 1.6 times higher than the Wuhan, where, you know, the, the spread of COVID-19 was four times greater than Wuhan. So you can imagine we are talking about 1.6 times then this uh, then uh, that ship population in Rohingya camps. So the vulnerability levels are much, much higher. And apart from that, you know, there are basic services are very limited in Rohingya camps where you have limited health facilities, limited water sanitation, hygiene facilities, uh, food distribution is on and off. So that makes people more vulnerable. Apart from that, Rohingya camp uh, in Cox's Bazar also has 55% uh, children population. So you can see 550,000 children uh, below the age of 18 out of a million people and 52% are women. So these two populations we all know are much more vulnerable than their male counterpart. So that makes a big difference. But otherwise, I must say that the host community is equally uh, affected, especially because the basic services are highly stressed. We are clearly witnessing in one of the sub-districts where, you know, large number of Rohingyas are living, 
already the groundwater has gone down significantly. And now people have started facing water crisis, both in refugee camp, but also in host communities. So in a situation like COVID-19, where you're talking about uh, a lot more hand washing, a lot more personal hygiene etiquette, and if you don't have enough water, then how is it going to make a difference? Okay, so you talked a little bit about how COVID-19 has affected um, refugee camps and what makes them particularly vulnerable. So I wanted to ask, um, has COVID-19, um, the disease specifically, differed from other um, disease outbreaks in the past, such as maybe measles or cholera, um, in its effect on refugee camps? Yeah, I mean, because of several vulnerability, which I already mentioned in case of Rohingya camps, um, of course, you know, any disease outbreak can be much more devastating in situations like refugee camps. Uh, but the difference what I see, and Rohingya camp has actually witnessed many of these outbreaks, which you just mentioned, the measles. Uh, but Corona or COVID-19 is a bit different. One, because, you know, if people have never heard about it, it's a very new phenomenon. So no one has any clue. And then as a result, there are a lot of rumors also which are coming in. And that's where people don't have clear idea what to do, what not to do. The second important challenge, what I clearly see in this case, is that government of Bangladesh has put restrictions on the internet connectivity as well as you know access to mobile phones to refugees. And with reduced humanitarian footprints in the Rohingya camps, it is massively difficult for us to go to the camps and make people aware. If, if we had the internet connectivity, if, we, if uh, Rohingya people had the access to mobile phones, it would have been much easier to disseminate accurate information about COVID-19. So I can clearly see that that's a massive difference between this particular crisis and the crisis what we have seen. The third thing is that, of course, you know, from the humanitarian community point of view also, for all of us, it's a very new phenomenon. And the level of preparation, what is needed is very different. So, you know, the other type of outbreak can still be treated in the existing health facilities by making some adjustment. But COVID-19 is completely different because of its potential of, you know, uh, spread. So that's where we need separate facilities to isolate people and to treat people. And that is something which is not available because of several issues. One is, of course, the space is very limited. Secondly, you know, to put together these uh, isolated facilities uh, need big investment, need a lot of space, not need a lot of time. And we are currently facing challenges on all of it. Just to give you an example, that as of now, you know, some predictions suggest that roughly 10,000 beds are required in Cox's Bazaar to treat the potential COVID-19 patients. But the planning, what is currently being undertaken by humanitarian community is 2,000 beds. And as of today, when I'm speaking to you, we have only a few hundred beds ready. So we have been lucky enough that uh, the COVID has not spread uh, the way it has spread in other countries, but we are clearly seeing that it is now increasing. In overall Bangladesh, every five to six days, the number are doubling. Every day we are seeing somewhere between 1,500 to 1,700 people getting infected in Bangladesh. And as of now, we have close to 31,000 people infected. In Cox Bazar, if we see, we started with first case, you know, a week ago in Rohingya camp. And now as of today, when I'm talking to you, we are already having 13 cases. So it can spread very fast. And when we are at the peak situation, which other countries have already witnessed, many of them, it will be extremely difficult to contain the virus, but also, you know, to treat the patients. 
So that's where I see the big difference between other outbreak and this particular outbreak in context of Rwanda. So you mentioned how um, there's like a decreased humanitarian footprint um, caused by, uh, implemented by the lack of mobile connection or mobile phones by the Bangladeshi government. So I just wanted to clarify. So um, those who are responsible for refugee health care, is that the humanitarian organizations who are primarily responsible? And does the Bangladeshi government provide any resources or like do their health care system provide any resources for health care? So it's a joint effort actually under the leadership of government of Bangladesh and they have a dedicated agency in Cox's Bazaar which is called Refugee Relief and Repatriation Commission. So they are the one which leads and then we have a full-fledged system uh, which includes UN as well as the international and local NGOs. So I must say that the government of Bangladesh, UN together with local NGOs as well as international NGOs, they all are making efforts and when it comes to health, of course, these are, you know, together we make, uh, we bring all the services. So, of course, government also bring different type of services in terms of their own staff, but also providing, you know, coordination support, making sure that, you know, law and order situation in the camp is governed properly. So they have, you know, uh, they have recruited camp in charge for each camp, which whose role is to call, to make sure that each agency works in the camp they work in coordination with other agencies and then all the needs are met. So that's where I see the government of Bangladesh role. But UN and international and national NGOs, they bring direct service delivery support. So like for international rescue committee, we already have four health uh, clinics, which runs 24 seven. And we are now putting together um, a COVID specific hospital, which will have 60 bed capacity to just treat the patient. We are also putting together mobile medical teams because you know it's it's going to be very, very difficult when we reach to peak to treat everyone in the isolation wards because not everyone will, will be that in severe situation. We all know that large number of people will still have mild to moderate symptoms and they might need different type of support. So for that, we are putting together mobile medical team to treat them in home because the health facilities will be overburdened in the peak situation. So just to uh, summarize the discussion, the humanitarian community that includes UN and local and international NGOs, they provide the direct service delivery when it comes to health and government being a lot of coordination aspects uh, from the civil surgeon office, which is the Ministry of Health and uh, law and order situation. And so, as we know, a cyclone has recently devastated the area of Bangladesh and India as well. How has that impacted the refugee camps and how is the IRC responding to this crisis in particular? So, with regards to Cyclone Amphan, which uh, had a landfall day before yesterday on 21st of May, in uh, first in India and then in Bangladesh, we were lucky enough that Cox Bazar, where uh, close to a million Rohingya refugees are living, uh, was not on the direct path of the Cyclone Amphan. So it actually had a landfall in southern and southwestern part of Bangladesh, where Rohingya refugee camp does not exist. But still, you know, as a result of this cyclone, there were heavy wind and heavy rain, which was witnessed in uh, the refugee camp as well as in wider Cox Bazar. But uh, we have done a rapid need assessment of the situation and we did not find any significant impact on the Rohingya camps. Uh, one, because the impact or the cyclone Amphan was not directly hitting this place, but two, 
there has been a lot of preparedness efforts conducted by both government and other larger humanitarian community over the last two years because the Rohingya refugees are living since 2017. So there has been massive investment on the preparedness aspect to cyclone, which is very common phenomena in Caucasus Bazaar as well as in wider Bangladesh. So people were generally prepared and they have faced, you know, last year also two cyclones, if you remember Cyclone Pony and Cyclone Bulbul, which was in 2019. So this has actually familiarized people. So preparedness level was a bit high. And uh, as a result, there was hardly any impact in Cox Bazaar. Um, so I had a question kind of about how the IRC responds to emergencies generally. So um, like we talked about the cyclone and how uh, you guys were obviously tracking that and monitoring that and luckily it didn't hit the Cox Bazaar region. But then also um, we talked about like the pandemic and COVID-19, how um, like that was kind of an emergent situation throughout the world. So I'm just curious, do you find that your own role has kind of fluctuated during these emergency situations? And do you find yourself kind of taking on new responsibilities? And I guess, how is the organization and perhaps like as a country director, like you have been kind of responding to these situations? Yeah, so it has actually changed. Uh, I mean, as you know, COVID-19 has impacted the entire global community. So Cox Bazaar, Bangladesh is not an exception. And we clearly see there has been massive changes in the way we operate and the scale at which we operate. So just to give you an example that IRC currently has around 450 staff and 500 volunteers, so altogether 950. And because of COVID situation, the reduced number of you know, interventions, reduced services, we had to also you know, do a revised workforce planning where now we are operating at 50% capacity because movement to camp is restricted from the point of view of you know, reduced exposure to the staff, but also reduced exposure to the Rohingya community themselves by our staff. So we are now operating at 50% capacity and that is putting huge amount of strain to the team. And you know, that's where I see as a country director for IRC, how to make sure the duty of care, which IRC has towards its staff in terms of protecting them from this crisis. So, you know, we had to switch the gear and immediately start procurement for the personal productive equipment for the staff. So now we have provided the PPEs to all the staff. In terms of you know transport, we are again you know using the same car for half number of passengers. So like you know earlier we used to transport ten people in a car. Now we are transporting only five people in a car. So it has also increased the cost of the of the of the operation. Then from program side. Um, you know, as I mentioned, that we had to immediately switch our gear to to start the operate to start the operation on COVID response. So now, establishing a separate hospital for isolation and treatment of the patient. So that was a big change which we had to immediately introduce. And then the protection activities, which are absolutely critical and really concerning, as I mentioned, that the gender-based violence is increasing. So the one of the adaptation what we did was that because we can't send several staff to the camp, it was good that we were already training a lot of Rohingya volunteers as well as Bangladeshi volunteers who have been working with us for the last over a year. So they are now taking charge on the ground and they are now trying to do all the work which our staff were doing earlier on the ground. So now our staff are providing more remote support to them and these volunteers are on the front uh, on the front line and they are collecting all the information and providing IRC to design its interventions. 
to all those, you know, as I mentioned several things, I think what we are also finding it challenging is that how to rapidly scale up this uh, whole response, given that COVID situation has just started picking up in Bangladesh. And we are clearly expecting a peak situation coming in in the next couple of weeks or a month. And that's where I think the effort what IRC as well as others are doing are not enough. And we need to really scale up this response massively. And that's where we are looking at now uh, the, the donors, the, the developed countries to provide support to Bangladesh as well as Rohingya camps so that we can immediately scale up you know, the isolation wards, we can immediately scale up the protection activities, and we can meet the needs. The other important uh, change what we also made is the education. You know, As I mentioned, 55% children in the Rohingya camps are uh, children community. And of course, they did not have any formal education opportunities in the past, but at least some sort of non-formal learning opportunities they were enjoying. And because of COVID situation, almost entire education program is suspended and IRC is still trying to make some efforts to the volunteers. So providing them some you know, learning material and some learning exercises through volunteers to the children in home. But of course, those efforts are not enough. And if the situation continues, it's a massive risk that more than half a million children will completely out of education and no learning at all. So just to circle back to the point of gender-based violence in the refugee camps, I'm curious as to how the IRC calculates or receives reports of gender-based violence. Is it through some type of phone line, through workers that come into the camps and ask? Or how, how does the process work for women to be able to report gender-based violence in the home? Yeah. So we have, uh, we have structures called Women and Girls Safe Space which are like, you know, a couple of rooms, uh, temporary structure made of bamboo and thatch. And so this is the institutional approach where women are, you know, free to come, where we have our trained staff to provide the support in terms of psychosocial support, but also in terms of, you know, uh, linking them with the type of services they need. The other element what we are working is at the community level. So community level, there are two important aspects when it comes to gender-based violence. One is that our volunteers and trained staff are going into community every day and they you know, sort of encourage women if they face any gender-based violence so they can always access IRC's uh, Women and Girls Safe Space, which I, as I mentioned, that these are structures. So they can come and they can secure those services. So it's more sort of a marketing of that particular structure and help people to understand that what kind of services we are providing so that people are encouraged to come and visit those facilities and seek services. The other dimension of community-based intervention is to work with male counterparts. So that is something which is critical, which we call it prevention aspects, so prevention of gender-based violence, because most of the time we know that women face gender-based violence from the male, be it their husband or other male community in their home. And that's where our team work with the male counterpart at household level and at community level to help them understand, to sensitize them about the gender-based violence issues and why it is so critical to prevent. So it's both ways. While we are working on the response part, when women face gender-based violence, we provide them services to them in the institution, which is called Women and Girls Safe Space. But on the other side, we are also working on prevention aspect, which is more at the community level, 
where we work with the male counterparts and help them to understand the implication of gender-based violence. Because you know we are talking about a 50% population of the world, which is women. And unless women are empowered, it is absolutely, you know, it's not possible to, to consider any development or to, uh, to assume any development of the community or at household level. Okay, so just a quick follow up on that. I remember I took a really um, interesting class on um, talk, which we talked about a little bit of humanitarian aid and um, NGOs and refugees. And one thing that came up that I found was kind of um, relevant was we talked about how for a lot of psychology issues with um, women in refugee camps, there's sometimes stigma against um, speaking out or um, reporting such things. And so I was wondering, are you seeing um, cases like that happening with reporting gender-based violence? And is the IRC or um, other uh, groups in general doing anything to try to combat um, the structural part of um, preventing the stigma that is preventing women from reporting and for um, talking? Yeah, very true, actually. You are, what you are saying is absolutely correct. And in fact, if I quote a figure that in IRC facilities at this moment, you know, the, the procedure, what we do is the screening of women. So whoever comes, we have a pre-defined questionnaire and our staff are well-trained. So they do the full screening of the women. And not all the women actually opt for the screening because our interventions are very much, you know, clients oriented. So we need to first seek their consent if they are willing to be screened. And if they say yes, then only we, uh, we screen them. So just to tell you that the women who uh, come to our facilities and, you know, these are a couple of thousand every month I'm talking about, 25% of them, 25 to 27% of them actually reported the gender-based violence which they have faced, be it in terms of you know physical violence, in terms of emotional violence, in terms of sexual violence. So I'm talking about only 20 to 27 percent women. So this essentially means that many women are not coming forward and to report these cases because of, of course, and as you have rightly mentioned, the stigmatization or you know there is potential further risk where you know the male counterpart can further increase the violence. Um, so these are some of the important challenges what we face. And that is where, you know, as I mentioned, the community level approach is absolutely important, where we go out in the community and uh, encourage women to come forward and seek those services in the women and girls safe space, but also working with male counterpart. And then the other dimension is what makes, you know, trust of the women, because trust and comfort, comfort level is very important when it comes to the issues like gender-based violence. And that's where, you know, how trained our staff are, the way they behave with those female clients, the confidentiality and privacy is extremely important because once women share those information, they definitely expect that all those information remain confidential. And so that's where I think we, we follow, we have our international protocol and IRC is you know, known worldwide for its gender-based violence. So we have international standards, which all our staff are trained on, and then they follow whenever they are managing any of those gender-based violence cases. And just to tell you last thing, before COVID, before COVID, I said 25 to 27%, but in COVID situation, the number has gone high, and now we are seeing around 30% female, they have reported that they are facing gender-based violence. So, you mentioned your gender-based violence initiatives. Earlier, you mentioned your education initiatives. Um, all, of course, extremely important work um, that the IRC does. 
Um, but I'm curious how has international, as international attention has shifted to COVID and labeling that kind of as an emergent situation, how has international aid or the work with international organizations um, changed in terms of prioritizing maybe different programs, um, maintaining the um, important programs like gender-based violence ones, um, while still, I guess, dealing with something like a pandemic? So there has been some shift, I would say, uh, because of COVID, of course, and as I was mentioning, a lot of program activities were suspended or reduced. But in, when it comes to the attention from the donor community, I would say the, the efforts or the attention is still very, very limited because, you know, the overall for the overall funding, what we see in COXIS is that, and there is a tool which we call Joint Response Plan, which is basically to identify the overall need for a calendar year. So I'm talking about 2020, which starts from January to December. And uh, normally, you know, in last couple of years, since uh, Rohingya crisis started in Bangladesh in 2017, we see these Joint Response Plan were funded like somewhere between 60 to 65%. And I'm saying, you know, regular time. Now in the COVID situation, we are still not seeing, you know, donors coming up uh, aggressively and putting their resources. And that is something which is really worrisome for us because this is the critical time for us to get prepared to face the peak situation, which might come in the next couple of weeks. And as I mentioned, an example of the number of beds, what we are talking about nearly 10,000. And at this moment, we have a few hundred beds, so which is no way enough. And that's where we clearly see there is a need, massive, massive need for donor communities and developed countries to come forward and to provide support to meet those needs. The second thing what we are also seeing is that the personal protective equipment or the staff well-being, which is, you know, which is very critical and concerning because if your frontline humanitarian staff are not confident, they won't be able to provide those services. And that is where I think the massive need of PPE which has to be met not only, I mean, of course, there are a lot of effort happening in Bangladesh by government, other agencies, but that's where, again, we would like to, uh, you know, have the attention of all the people, especially, you know, sitting in the donor countries. And just to say last, last thing on this particular aspect, that this virus won't be over for anyone until it is over for everyone. So we are not talking about Bazaar you know, response or any other response, but we are talking about that global community has to come together to address this crisis everywhere. And Cox Bazaar, because of its unique vulnerabilities, the Rohingya camps, because of its unique vulnerabilities, needs to get the desired attention, be in terms of, you know, financial assistance and technical assistance and other resources to address this COVID-19 situation. So just as a final question for you, you know, for any um, any of our audience who listens to this podcast and anyone who feels like they would like to donate to the IRC and donate to the wonderful efforts and the very important work that you all are doing, how can members of our audience donate to your cause? Yes, I think that is really important because IRC is very much welcoming those individual donations and every single donation helps a lot to reach out to our clients in more meaningful way. And uh, because IRC is sitting on ground currently, so we know the context very well and our response is very context appropriate. I would encourage you know, those people who would like to donate to IRC, they should go to IRC website, where you know on the homepage, on the first window itself, you can find an option 
where you know how you can donate and each and every donation is counted and irc just to also tell you that almost we spend around 85% of the total resources uh, on the ground towards the program and it's the 15% which generally covers our operational and other administrative costs so very much welcome for any donation because every penny count and especially in the situation like covid where the immediate scale up of response is critical we would we would encourage and we would welcome every single donation which can be made on irc website yeah and i really just want to second that um to our listenership if you feel called to act um please donate and um like he said the irc is not just a group that kind of swoops in and like is fixing a emergency situation they are really an organization that is fully immersed in the issue of refugees um and like you said you guys are really doing um amazing long-term sustainable um programming that's really helping so many people yeah thanks a lot thank you so much for coming and talking with us um before we end is there anything that you wanted to add um that we didn't get a chance to touch on uh for our listenership to know i think the that my last message is of course for all the listeners that you know this is a global pandemic so we all need to work together on this crisis and as i said that this this pandemic this disease does not discriminate anyone so every human being is important and our job as a humanitarian organization in irc is to save lives especially though for those people who live in you know difficult situation like rohingya camps and our team is on ground working very very hard day and night and you know any support in form of financial or any other form of assistance would be highly welcome so i would encourage our you know your listeners to go out immediately after this when they see this when they listen this interview uh, on the irc website where you can see on the right side there is a box called donate and uh, feel free to donate there thank you very very much nice to talk to you Don't forget to rate us 5 stars and leave us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at @hopkinspofa. That's Hopkins P O F A. Where we share updates and articles that expand on podcast topics and international affairs. And of course, to donate to the International Rescue Committee, you can visit help.rescue.org. Thanks for listening.